This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Like the rest of us, I bet you're going into 2020 thinking about what you didn't get done in 2019 and you've got big, big goals to hit off 2020. So if you've got a goal to read more or if reading is going to be something that's going to service your other goals, then Blinkist is the app for you. If you want to work towards being your best self in 2020, it's a great time to check out the Blinkist app. You can get a free seven-day trial using our link. If you head to Blinkist.com slash what you will learn, you can get a free seven-day trial of Blinkist and check out some of the great content they have to offer. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of part three of our three-part series of mastery, and this is all about awakening the dimensional mind, the creative active mode. So Mastery by Robert Greene, legendary book. Episode one, we spoke about discovering your calling and that we all have this unique seed planted deep within us that we need to try to uncover, we need to water it, we need to fertilize it and let that bad boy grow. And then part two, we spoke about the apprenticeship phase, learning the ropes, the importance of valuing learning over money in the early phases and getting a mentor to streamline the process. So this part three is all about now that we've sort of learnt the ropes, we've understood the basics, we've got a firm grasp on our field and our industry, now it's time to get creative and make some wild new shit. Well, <laughs> wild new shit for a lack of a better word. If you think about when we were children, we really experienced the world different. Your mind is completely open. You grab a little spade off the ground and all of a sudden you're running around fighting army aeroplanes and tanks or a little box is a castle or a dungeon and your your mind is completely open to new and crazy great ideas the colors seem brighter we experience things like imagine going to the circus for the first time and seeing an elephant jump through the roof <laughs> it's a pretty impressive elephant you've been, you saw when you i don't know where that, i don't know where that came from but that was a maybe that was a dream that but, was uh, a, yeah. in a child coming in, <laughs> and, I think, which is a good thing. <laughs> so we're going off on these wild ideas, and it's what uh, Robert Greene refers to as the original mind. As a child, we're not at all obstructed by what's around us. We just see the world for what it is, and it seems absolutely magical. But as the years pass, this intensity inevitably diminishes. Our view of the world constricts a little. We don't see things as they are anymore because everything is altered through our perceptions in that the opinions and the words of other people around us and our prior experience, they cast this kind of lens over everything that happens. So we used to notice the finer details. We used to wonder how things came to be, but no longer. Our minds have tightened up. Because of this, we can achieve more. We can sort of work hard in our narrow field. But this is what Robert Greene calls the conventional mind. We can get stuff done, but we're just following the same sort of tracks. Yeah, again, it's this this pressure to make a living and conform to society. We force our minds to become so so tight and we lose this flexibility and freedom that we had as a kid. Everything's defined and everything is known. And when you see the thing that is known get attacked and opened up to be something else completely different, you feel threatened. And uh, this conventional mind is a bit of a disease that we all kind of fall into a little bit. So the masters possess what Green calls the dimensional mind, and it's basically the ultimate mix of original and conventional in that they have the conventional mind of the adult world and the, the realism and that they can sit down to work and work for a few hours and get stuff done and, and actually finish a task and create value. 
but they also bring in the right amount of the original mind. They have this childlike exuberance. They're excited about the world around them. They let their intuition take over. They follow random paths and they have the perfect mix of both this childlike enthusiasm mixed with the adult-like discipline. Yeah, and this is the mix that we want to get. There's two ingredients to this. We need a high-level knowledge about the field or a certain subject and also the openness and flexibility to use the knowledge in new and original ways. So the knowledge part, that came from our apprenticeship phase in the last episode. Very rigorous. We mastered the basics. And once the mind is freed, we're up to this level where we can start applying it in new different ways. And the child mind uh, comes out and starts, you know, inventing elephants that jump out of uh, <laughs> jump out of circus tents, apparently. <laughs> I don't know where that one came from. But yeah, so phase one is the creative task. And so Robert Greene says that creativity is not just intellectual. You don't just sit at your desk and try to imagine something and something pops in and it's purely by your mind, but it's actually a combination of our entire selves. It's our emotions, it's our levels of energy, it's our characters and our minds all working together to create something new and unique. Yeah, this creative task, it's a choice where to direct your energy and this is what's going to make you a master. So you need an emotional commitment to what you're doing and this needs to be translated directly into work. If you go into work half-assed and uh, it will show lackluster results that in, in all your work, you know, you don't have the attention to details and you're not fully committed to whatever project or product that you're putting your energy towards. If your work just becomes mechanical and a bit of a grind and you just churn something out at the other end, people realize, people recognize that there was, there was no love, there was no emotion, there was no true investment in this. Yeah. So it's vitally important that we select something that does resonate with us, something we can something we can become excited about, something we obsess over. And this is going to show in the details of our work. It's going to truly come from this like place of authenticity. People are going to feel the magic. Yeah, there's a lot of lackluster lack people out there. I remember working with a guy called uh, Crabtree. I'm sure he's not listening. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to a podcast like this. Lovely Mate, he dude. sounds creative. He's not creative. <laughs> he's one of those engineers, been there for a couple of decades, still lives with his... Still lives with his, his parents and he's a lovely guy and all that. But he used to go for the the fuck <laughs> shouldn't be so brutal. But Crabtree, yeah, he's uh, you know, been a few decades in the job and just running through the emotions, mundane, trying to hide from tasks and all that, handball and everything away. Every lunchtime he'd go on what we'd call the Crabtree loop and he'd just <laughs> he'd walk from the office all the way through places of Melbourne you never knew existed. I joined him for one of the journeys and uh yeah, it's almost forest land from melbourne it's a very long loop yeah, that sounds Just, creative as fuck <laughs> <laughs> my crabtree's not a creative man Poor crabtree i hope he's not listening he won't be listening don't worry <laughs> but this first phase it's vital to select the right kinds of things you're going to dedicate your time to firstly it has to be realistic so it has to be somewhat within the realm of the knowledge and the skills that you've already developed you need to be able to pull it off you need to be able to get to the end so something that you've gone through your apprenticeship and this is the type of task you're going to select Probably you should select something that's slightly above you, so you need to stretch a little bit to get there so that you don't come complacent and mechanical. Second, you must let go of your need for comfort and security. This has come up a few times already, basically in all three steps, I'd say. But creative endeavors are by their nature uncertain. If you're treading the path that's already been well-worn, there's no way you can actually come to mastery. You need to tread that path until you get to the end of the where the, the path ends and then there's a whole bunch of new jungle out there. And some stage, you're going to start cutting through the jungle yourself where it's very uncertain, where there's going to be a few lions and hyenas to uh, start eating you from the behind. So it's absolutely vital that we select the right task to dedicate our creativity towards. Now, Green gives us a whole bunch of strategies to get there. He says that the mind is like a muscle 
and unfortunately it's constantly tightening up over time unless we consciously work to loosen it up so firstly it kind of it tightens up because we generally prefer to entertain the same thoughts and use the same way of thinking as we always have done so it gets in this bit of a groove that this is what we always do so it sort of strengthens itself in that direction and then secondly whenever we're working really hard at a problem our minds naturally narrow their focus so that we can sort of dig deeper work a bit harder but it ends up with this tight brain that's sort of stuck in its one track yeah so we want to avoid this tightness and one way to avoid it is to cultivate mystery and uncertainty whenever you can whenever you you allow your mind to experience doubt and uncertainty for as long as possible that's something you need to be trying to go after if you think about Einstein, right, he's a real master. What he used to do is let his brain go into weird and funny directions where he'd imagine himself going at the speed of light and looking at things through this paradigm where no one else has really looked at these things before. He made new discoveries that no one else has in the past. Yeah, if you're just thinking in the certain safe space, you'd be looking through the books and looking through scientific theories and smashing out some mathematical formulas. But Einstein used to like picture himself writing on a beam of light. Obviously, that's very mysterious. And he thought, okay, what if I'm riding on a beam of light? What about the dude next to me on his beam of light? Okay, there's a train coming towards me. What happens when it turns its lights on? What if it's coming at the same direction? What if it's going the opposite direction? What if I'm side on and it turns its lights on? What happens to that beam of light? So all these weird, mysterious things allowed him to expand his brain and think differently. Yeah, I don't want to take too much from Einstein, but if you get to that result where you're thinking, imagining yourself going with the light... It's not a huge step from there to actually come up with the principles of general relativity. Yeah, it's pretty easy. It's a <laughs> big call. <laughs> That's a decently sized probably, call. Uh, <laughs> decently sized call. That's probably it, yeah. But yeah, Robert Greene says, the need for certainty is the greatest disease our mind faces. Oh, Ooh, yeah. So we need, to, uh, we need to develop the habit of suspending the need to judge everything that crosses our path. So we need to just, if something crosses our path, we shouldn't judge it straight away and put it in a bucket. We need to be willing to experience the unknown and be comfortable with wild, mysterious things going on around us. It might be as simple as you know, reading a book from an unrelated field or considering a different school of thought or a different religion or a different philosophy, just trying something outside of your comfortable realm of knowledge. Another strategy for creativity is reverting to primal forms of intelligence. If you think too hard, you're going to come up with something a little bit too literal so you need to let your attention wander, play around the edges of your concept, loosen up your hold on consciousness and allow weird and wacky images come to you. If you think about Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, they quickly moved from sketches on paper to 3D models to better play with them and visualize how things work in their minds. Or big Nikola Tesla, he would always visualize machine in his brain and work out all the moving parts in that sense. Yeah, Watson and Crick, the guys who sort of discovered DNA, they didn't just theorize about DNA. They built this big 3D DNA model that they could interact with, they could move around, they could play with it. Uh, And Charles Darwin, he was trying to find the best words to communicate his theories of evolution. And he was sort of getting in this track of getting too literal and too obvious. And it wasn't until he started sketching in his book that he was sort of connecting with these primal forms of intelligence he sort of thought about, okay, it's sort of like evolution. It's sort of like a tree. You plant the seed and it shoots out. Something happens and they branch off. Some branches stop there. Some branches might shoot off to form sub-branches. And it was through sketching this weird tree that he was able to come up with a, a sort of succinct way of explaining evolution. Another strategy is altering your perspective. So consider thinking as an extended form of vision that allows us to see more of the world. 
and creativity as the ability to expand that vision beyond conventional boundaries. Mm. A few specific suggestions. He says that most people get stuck into looking at the what instead of the how. So if a problem pops up for whatever reason you can't finish the project, people just think of what is a specific problem here. They never really step back to the higher level and think how did this problem arise? So if you can get out of the trap of always looking at the what and trying to solve specific problems, you can get more creative by going to a higher level. Mm. He also talks about confirming paradigms and ignoring anomalies. I think all the fallacies really could fit into this category here. We're all quite irrational and having an understanding of in what ways you are irrational can really help with uh, with your creativity. But obviously, confirmation bias is a big one that slaps us all up in a very big way. I you know, recently listened to Chris Cress versus the guys off Game Changers. So on Joe Rogan, Cress are all about meat and uh, an omnivorous diet. The other person all about an all-plant diet. Both of them have incredible research to back both of their points of view up. It's just clearly two people who have got confirmation bias and, and found all the reasoning and results to confirm what they already believe. But in both cases, perhaps they may or may not be getting it a truth because of the, the bias. Ignoring the anomalies there and the intricacies is a, is a big trap that people often look into. Like, say, Charles Darwin, most people saw these minor mutations in birds that were ever so slightly different. And they thought, oh, there's nothing too wild about that. They're mostly the same. But Darwin thought, no, nah, there's something pretty important here. And that's when he started to develop these theories of evolution that through the survival of the fittest, maybe their beak got slightly longer or their claws got slightly sharper over time. So by looking at those anomalies and not just neglecting them as just uh, you know, part of the norm, that's when you're able to find something truly different and creative. So that's all about creative different strategies to get to the next point, which is going to be the creative breakthrough. And this is where we're utilizing a lot of tension and insight. So the typical trajectory of any project for from any master, if you think about it, you begin the project with initial initial excitement about potential success. This project is deeply connected to something personal and primal in that unique seed of your individuality which we were talking about and so the project seems very much alive to them it's like an extension of their personal seed which they've uh, been born with and this initial nervous excitement inspires them in certain directions and they begin to give their concept shape narrowing down possibilities channeling their energies into ideas that grow and grow and grow into more distinct categories as an extension of their personality so they've entered a phase of real height and focus. But as a master, they possess this quality that complicates their work process. They're not easily satisfied by what they're doing. They never feel like it's good enough. They're always striving to get better and better and better. They sometimes feel excitement about the prospects of what can happen at the end, but they also feel this sort of doubt, maybe this imposter syndrome about their their lack of worthiness to tackle this task. But what inevitably happens at any process, they hit a bit of a brick wall They're trying to do something brand new, something creative, but they just can't quite get to a solution. And unfortunately, the harder and harder they try to force a solution, the more frustrated they get in that they're just banging up against a brick wall. Whatever they try, they can't seem to get there. And so it's at this critical juncture of any project that lesser types would tend to maybe either give up halfway or they'll settle for this mediocre half-assed attempt. But the masters, they're stronger. They've been through it before. They realize that they somehow have to plow forward, but it's important that they take a quick little rest. Yeah, it's almost, uh, it's very interesting here that this little rest he sees as a very common step for, for all projects and all reaching mastery. I think it's 
it's almost somewhat metaphysical, the idea that you need this rest and then this insight will just come out of nowhere towards you. But he says it's a common thing that happens to the masters. So Einstein, uh, when trying to find out the formulas for general relativity, one night he thought, stuff it, you know, F this, I'm done with it, I'm going to give up. And after slaving away for months and years and years and all this time, you know, he, he got rid of the sunk costs and, and he, 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 he threw it all away. But it was that one night he threw it all away. He went to bed. Then in the morning he awoke and then the answer came to him in a dream the whole way. That's pretty wild, man. I, wouldn't, I don't know if it's like the best advice to just give up <laughs> expecting this thing to come towards you, but it's quite... But it's, it's vitally important that you give up at the, at the right time. So what... Uh, they've done here, we've got a few more examples as well, but what they've done is they've worked really, really hard and developed this project to the point where they're like 98% done. They're so close. And what's happened by this work on this narrow focus over a long period of time is their brain has sort of become trained on trying to find the solution. But what's happened is they've become constricted in that they're thinking too hard, they're working too hard, they're trying to force the solution that their brain can't quite get there. It's not until we sort of give the brain a bit of a release, a bit of a rest, that it starts to tick over subconsciously in the background and that's when the things start to happen. Another one, Keith Richards famously wrote the guitar riff to Satisfaction in His Sleep. I mm. thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Do you want to hear that? We've got in the notes. Bam, bam, ba-da-dum, da-dum, dum, dum, dum. It's a pretty good riff. Pretty it's quite, quite insightful. I don't know if I said the <laughs> level, of, uh, level of Einstein's general relativity, tune. but it's a good tune. <laughs> then we've also got uh, Richard Wagner. He was working on this opera called... Uh, how do you pronounce this? Das. I got Rheingold. it. Das. No. No. Das. Das. <laughs> oh, I forgot that bit of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was like, he was working, working, working. He got to the point where he couldn't even like think of what the next note was. So he thought, no, nah, I need a break. I need to step back from this. He went for this walk through the forest. He lay down under a tree and sort of started to half drift off to sleep. He was in this weird dream state. He could hear the river flowing in the background. And it was this sense where the, the river was flowing that the, it started to form in his mind. It's like these different musical notes working together and forming chords and different instruments. And he like sort of awoke abruptly. He felt like he was drowning. He felt like he was in the water. But he ran home, started scribbling out furiously everything he could. And he was able to form this uh, musical section that sounded like a running river. And it sort of formed the whole basis of this whole opera. Yeah, that's some serious mastery right there. So as a summary of journeying toward that creativity, we need the original mind. So remember the childlike mind, the creative force that wants to become active, that's playing with boxes and starships and running around like a wild <laughs> cat. Elephants in the roof. Elephants and... through roofs and all that. These are all really good things. And this is that gift. And the human mind, it's naturally creative, constantly looking to make associations and connections between things and ideas. Don't let the restrictive force come in and just stifle all of this creativity away. That's one of the biggest risks that you're going to have on this journey toward mastery. Yeah, so the solution here is that we need to constantly release our brain. We need to loosen that tightness that we're getting forced into narrow and narrow tracks of thinking. We need to think more broadly, approach problems from different perspectives, use new methods of thinking. But then, of course, we need to ultimately allow ourselves to relax at the right point and then it just comes to us in a dream. Magic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't bank on that. Maybe, maybe um, Keep working hard, quit yeah. for it, like kind of quit for three days and then... If it doesn't come to you, then just get back to it and, and uh, keep going. Then maybe quit every three months and then uh, see if one of these dreams just comes up and you end up solving some serious shit. Right, now, the final key to mastery that we're going to cover through this three-part series is all about 
social intelligence. And it's uh, sufficiently different, I think, to laws of human nature. It is a subset of those mm. those three-part series. So, uh, for me and you, that was one of our favorite books, if not the favorite. So, we do recommend going back to listen to that series mm. as well. Yeah, I know Robert Greene talked about when he was doing interviews about mastery and when people were asking what book comes next, he said that you know this one chapter of mastery, this idea of social intelligence, this idea of seeing people as they really are, this sort of was the the stepping stone or really the launching place for him to go into the the massive 600-page laws of human nature and those 18 different characteristics that he identified. So the key here, you must allow everyone the right to exist in accordance with their own character. He or she has whatever it turns out to be. And all you can strive to do is make a use of this character in such a way that its nature permits rather than hope for any alteration in it. Yeah, basically you can't just move through the world thinking that everybody's the same as you, everyone's got the same goals and intentions and you can't just think, well, this is the way it should be so this is the way it has to be. You need to realize that everybody is different, everybody's operating under their own trajectory and the it's just naive to think that people are always going to be similar to you. You need to realize that everyone's different and you need to start to understand that. Yeah, it's very naive. If someone's a real asshole to you, say you're working at a bar and one of your clients comes in and starts yelling at you and calls you some insulting names and everything, the naive perspective, you might look at that person and get extremely offended about what they said and who they are and you can apply that to pretty much a daily occurrence in your life uh, with when people react to you different to what your expectations and expectations are. But what we're trying to see through mastery here is see them almost as if like they're a rock or a piece of furniture or you're going through a zoo, kind of look at it mm. in an objective kind of experience. Like you look at a giraffe and you observe them objectively and they're, oh, that person's eating the grass of the tree <laughs> over there. You look at this person screaming at you about that beer that you poured, it was the wrong beer or whatever, and you look at it in the same kind of way. You don't get offended. You look at them like there's another piece of nature that's kind of interesting which, which kind of makes the whole world beautiful in a way with the diversity. Yeah, it does. It's really it's a cool way to look at it. And rather than the, the dude who's yelling at you about the beer and then you sit back and think, oh man, I've really stuffed this up. It says a lot about me as a person. I'm never going to be good enough. You've got to realize that it's probably more to do with them and their nature as opposed to you and your nature. Another great philosopher, uh, I hate to admit this, but uh, I watched The Bachelor Oof. a couple of months ago. One of the guys was actually, there was a pretty profound thing. He said what... Sally says about Susie says more about Sally than it, it does, does about, about Susie. Susie. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I've heard something similar. Yeah, so I thought it was pretty good. So the guy at the bar who's abusing the shit out of you for your 18-year-old kid and you're pouring a beer and you're on 15 bucks an hour and this old guy's walked in after work and starts yelling shit at you, it probably says a lot more about him, his life, his character than it does about your beer-pouring ability. Yeah, it's interesting this analogy considering we, I met you at a, <laughs> we both worked at a bar Sounds and that's like actually how we met. Example. It was the exact, exact kind of bar where we cop shit of a guy called uh, Kermy. But that's all right, we'll keep moving on. If you're listening, Kermy. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> I really like here also, which is continuing on this thread, it's all about suffering fools gladly. In the course of life, we're going to always be encountering these type of fools. It might be your boss, might be your colleague. There is simply way too many to try and avoid. So we can classify fools by as the people when it comes to practical life. What should matter is getting long-term results of your team and getting work done in as efficient manner and creative as possible. And that should be the supreme value in if the world was good. 
But really, fools carry a completely different set of values. They place importance on short-term matters and grabbing immediate attention and money and looking good. They're ruled by ego and insecurities. They love drama mm. and political intrigue for their own sake. When they criticize, they emphasize matters that are irrelevant to the overall picture of the agreement. So they're just coming in there, bloody, they're bloody fools just doing random shit. It's got nothing to do with what the results are. A natural tendency is to lower ourselves to their level. You know, maybe they annoy us and we they get under our skin, so we start to fight back. We're fighting the battles on their terms, not our own. We get sucked into their games and into their politics, into their, you know, nitpicking at tiny little things. It can be pretty frustrating. And if, if you get sucked into the world of the fools, uh, everyone loses. So like you're walking through the jungle and uh, looking at the different giraffes, we need to have the attitude of suffering fools gladly. And it should be forged very early, but we need to continue it on the way through mastery because again these fools and how you encounter and deal with them is one of the another one of your biggest risks so that's mastery by robert green he's done it again as we said about 12 months ago or a little over we did the laws of human nature his new book that was our number one mate mastery it's about half as long in terms of uh, pages which is good uh but it, mate, it's an absolute power packet it's probably one that i'd consider reading every single year or at least I need to get a, a regular refresher of just the, the the path to mastery, not just looking for the shortcuts, not just looking to get yourself to the top as quickly as possible, but taking the true path towards mastery. Yeah, it's a real privilege to come across Robert Greene's writing. It's uh, so well-researched every step and it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a book that I'd recommend to every single person I'll come across, no matter who they are, what they're doing, what age and stage of life they're at. Mastery is for absolutely everybody. Mm -hmm.